Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the culture we love that society sometimes makes us feel ashamed of. My name is Caroline and Big Brother will get back to you. Joining me is the girl who is not here to make friends, Pandora Sykes. <laughs> I think I would actually be there to make friends if I was on a reality show. I think I'd be quite insipid. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. I listened. To, you're, you're here to talk about reality TV today and I was listening to um, your new podcast, Unreal, which is all about reality TV and it's number one today in the UK. Very exciting. <laughs> I feel like a radio producer. <laughs> like, here to promote her new single. Um, but this thing where you're talking to all these Love Island um, contestants and they were all convinced that they were too boring to make it past week one, which is mad. Well, I think Love Island is quite an interesting one though because it is quite like Big Brother and I think that's why it's become a phenomenon yeah. like Big Brother was because they are all just like basically pacing this enclosed space so they they do have the tendency to be more boring than more structured lifestyle tv like kardashians and made in chelsea and towie which if you think about it have got like big old storylines week in week out totally and always always a new story growing as one is dying down as opposed to just nice people sitting by a pool looking at their phones or looking at you know each other i mean i read this weekend uh christine quinn the absolute hero of Selling Sunset. She did an interview with The Guardian on Sunday and she said that uh, Selling Sunset's got six full-time storyboarders. Oh my God. I was wondering what, there's not that many storylines in it. What are the six of, anyway, clearly they're they're obviously needed, but. So this is the thing. So we're here today to talk about reality TV and in in your new, what are we calling it, docu, audio documentary? (laughs) Audio documentary series. I know you feel very strongly about it. (laughs) audio documentary series you chart um the sort of history and the sort of sociology of reality tv starting from big brother and ending at love island it's 10 episodes right Mm -hmm. yeah um and what's interesting is that we treat reality tv as a monolith when actually there are so many sort of genres subcultures personality types that both um feature on these shows and also watch these shows i for example have never seen an episode of um the kardashians but i've seen every single episode of rupaul every single episode of america's next top model i love a competition-based reality show where i'm told the parameters of what like what's good and what's bad and then i can become a judge do you know what i mean i don't care about people sitting around talking and like i was wondering you know it's not a monolith. It is this like huge cultural thing. Have you noticed a difference in the types of people who watch different kinds of shows? There are definitely different types of people that watch different types of shows. I had never watched Kardashians or Real Housewives mm-hmm. before we made the show, whereas Shireen, my co-writer and co-host, is obsessed with those. I I don't think have ever missed an episode of Towie and Made in Chelsea, but I don't think Shireen had ever watched right. either of those. And my husband, for example, loves Love Island, but would would not, I don't think, watch Bake Off or Great British Sewing Bee, which actually aren't shows we covered, beloved shows, but we needed shows where there was like 
real depth for critical analysis. Yes. And those shows are just really gorgeous. <laughs> They're just really lovely. Do you know what I yeah, mean? They're like the flip side. You'd really struggle to find the dark side of Bake Off. It would just be like, what's under the soggy bottom? <laughs> like, not, not, not much. It's like, Paul Hollywood was a bit short with me one day. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> And he did sort of get turned into a bit of a criminal, didn't he? I read um, an interview with him, I think, this weekend, and he was saying that he was sort of, like, really amped up to be the bad guy. And like, people were really mean to him, and it would, like, make him cry. It's, <laughs> it really it's mean so about like, him in the papers. It's such, like, the instinct that you have to find the sort of the, the bone of contention or the, the shadow side that you we do. found it in Paul Hollywood. Just someone who, like... Just a good baker. <laughs> and who's never very mean to people, ever. So you love a competition-based one. So does that mean that you love The Swan? Had you watched any of The Swan? I'm so glad you brought up The Swan. So for those not familiar with The Swan, please summarise. So The Swan is a plastic surgery competition come beauty pageant, which aired in the States on Fox of 2004 to 2006. Only two series phenomenally popular and it's really important to say that bit because when we get into what it is everyone is like oh how disgusting oh how could this ever be made which is the reaction when it came across the UK in 2009 not the yes. show but just like you were able to watch the show but it was phenomenally popular there were 15 million viewers for the first episode which I I actually haven't found viewing stats like that except for Big Brother maybe don't even know if Big Brother even came to that and then 10 million viewers consistently across the series and half a million women in America um, auditioned or submitted an application to be a swan where you had at the very least 12 operations, 12 cosmetic procedures and at the very most 18 in three months. This is So I, I did wonder because I've often said, do you remember the swan to people um, over the years? And in general, my UK friends don't remember it. But it was a fucking huge deal in Ireland because the host was Irish. I know, Amanda Barham. She didn't <laughs> want to talk to us. We did put in for her. We did put in. She was like on every radio. It was a real like... Major host local well Local girl made good kind of thing. So everyone was hooked on the swan. And everyone was just so baffled. I mean, it was very like, as, as a piece of like sociological material, it was, oh my God, it was so right for analysis because it was all about like... And saying goodbye to the old Christy Gaza. And here's the new, this idea that you can just like shuck off your old self. Yes. That like tarting up the outside, you know, as, as Shirin said, like you're sort of on a home makeover show, like do a feature wall, hang a few pictures, you know, do some touch ups and oh, it's all great again. The, the idea that you can do that with a person, you are still the same person inside. And then this show is sending those people home in these, like, how completely disorientating. They're not allowed to look in any mirrors for three months. Yeah. They're not allowed to see their friends and family, which I, again, think is like a psychological, like, nightmare. They're just in these apartments being absolutely, like, beasted. They have signed up for this. They have signed up for this. Most of them do not regret it. But, you know, the thing about cosmetic surgery is you famously have to redo it, like, every seven years, and it's phenomenally expensive. Most of them had, like, £300,000 worth of procedures. So they're going back to their normal lives. None of these women are rich. What are they going to do in seven years' time when everything starts to slip and slide? What kind of, like, discombobulating process is that? And also, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the finale of this one was to make these horrifically psychologically and physically damaged women compete with one another. To be the most beautiful. The best bit is reading. There's a memoir by one of them called Tanya. 
And to be fair, the creator, Nellie Galan, says that her and Tanya are mates. They're on speaking terms. But anyway, the memoir is very, very funny. It was like self-published, like incredibly hard to get a hold of, as are the actual DVDs. You have to buy them secondhand off eBay. (laughs) And in this memoir, she says that if you didn't give... So they do this like red carpet reveal where they look at themselves in front of the mirror and they're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I remember it well. And if they don't do the, oh my God, they have to do it again and again and again, if they just go, wow, God, wow, my nose. Do we think that looks good? Does that look good? That that would not be it. That would not be it. They oh, wanted no. the like sobbing, that really like female princess ex- yes. like, reaction. Yes. And, and that thing of they all end up looking the same, right? They all have the hair extensions, the waist length hair extensions. They all have the sort of like pageant glamour, the spray tans, like this very uniform well, version I, of beauty. I mean, I said this to the, to the creator Nelly and she was like, first of all, she was like, she bristled. She was like, no, no, they don't. And then she was like, well, there are only so many procedures, <laughs> especially in 2004. <laughs> and if you're having that many of them, because they all had brow lifts. We had a very funny <gasps> contributor called Luxaria, who's a beauty YouTuber, who was just amazing. And Luxaria would be like, uh, she like comments on the videos. So she would be like, basically, you know, if in doubt, you'd have a brow lift or two. It was like brow lift for breakfast, brow lift for lunch. Most of them had nose jobs. There was a real obsession with, and this is so about where we were in 2004 with the beauty standards, which is another thing I found so fascinating. It was all about making them look more feminine. You know, like that was the ultimate goal. And women that didn't look feminine, it was like, what are we going to do with her? Can we help her? You know, it was a real, like, can can anything be done with this woman? Like, people around a boardroom, like, really wondering if they could help her. Oh, God. And this thing of, like, and I remember this being, because this, this swan is an extreme example of what we're talking it is, about. It is. But it is, um, it is a microcosm of so many other shows that were happening at the time and are still happening. And um, The Biggest Loser is another one. These yeah. these shows that focus on sort of radical transformation, as Shirin as said, like, as... um though a person were a building that you could just knock through a wall and, and fill things in and, and create a skylight. Um, but this notion of you let yourself get this way and it's taken us to intervene. This is how bad you have let it get that now us, a team of professionals and a camera crew, must intervene for the greater good. Like, it, and it, that's always is how it was staged. And this thing of like, it totally ignored all the realities of which these people lived in, which is first of, and these most of these shows are American, which is how <laughs> to access fucking basic healthcare, not to mind cosmetic healthcare in um in the US, how to access dental care in the US. Like like I've only really learned in the last few years by having more American friends how sensitive a subject teeth are in the yeah, US because absolutely. of how hard it is to access dental care and how expensive it is right and that's a real sign of success i think for a lot of reality stars the first thing they often do in the states is their teeth but yeah i mean this idea of like that they that they had kind of been disobedient to yeah almost to the sort of to the greater good um one of my favorites is when there's a single mother who's in the army and nelly says that she's lazy and they must keep her eye on their eye on her (laughs) just hardly lazy. But yeah, it is. It's this idea, and this is where I think it just joins in so neatly to where we are now. It's this idea of self-actualization through radical transformation. And it really kind of chimes, I think, with um, the sort of the wellness and self-care um, juggernaut, which I think has like 
good intentions a lot of the time but in other ways has just become another stick with women to beat themselves with like it's not enough to be hard working at your job and like be a good mum or be a good friend or you know enjoy certain hobbies you now have to like look it's that externalization that visualization everything needs to be visual everything needs to be striving for better for better and prettier and I think we put new language on it now but I think if you look at the fact that like a lot of the reality stars now their full-time job is how they look they're like five hours of glam before they go on these shows and it's just an extension of like women must always be polishing the exterior yes and you're right in that it's like there is a sort of um, constantly revised language around it. It's like the nobody ever says they're on a diet anymore. People say that they're um, trying paleo or they're doing this for their body or they're... they're well, know, everyone's got intolerances now, don't everyone's they? Everyone's got intolerances. Yes. And um, the the constantly refreshing around the language. And also, this is, this is kind of unrelated, but hopefully is a metaphor that makes sense. So few of my metaphors do. Um, I noticed a few years ago that like suddenly we were talking about sleep all the time. Like mm. suddenly... The, we the, are a nation of orthosomniacs. Is that the word? Yeah. Okay. A world of orthosomniacs. Obsessed with sleep. I'm obsessed with sleep. I'm obsessed with sleep. I'm obsessed... Like, I have a sleep ritual now that I developed over the last year that I'm so fucking proud of. And I tell... I just sleep like, hygiene. That's sleep, another one. I, yeah, I know. Oh, my God. I, I literally said to my best friend the other day, I'm getting really into sleep hygiene lately. Yeah. Yeah, it's a thing. I journal. I leave my phone in the other room. Yeah. I have aromatherapy. I just, I do the whole thing. Um, But it's the thing of like, once we have exhausted one specific avenue of betterment, so mm, once we've done mm. everything we possibly can with um, how much we can, what we can, what we can eat in what order, how much water we can drink, how many supplements we can take, once we've exhausted that and people are sick of it, we just like, okay, what now? And mm. then we just divert it into sleep. And it feels like the same thing happens with plastic surgery in reality shows or improvement shows where it's like, okay, we've sort of knocked through as many walls as we're going to knock through. How about lip fillers now? <laughs> it's like... I mean, and they are quite literally knocking through the walls, aren't they? It, I mean, that's why I thought that What Not To Wear was actually like a, an interesting foil because that show is a real Marmite show. Like, Shireen, you know, was very kind of iffy about that show. She was like, I think it really, it furthers really problematic ideals, which is still that, like, you've got to cover your lumps and bumps, that lumps and bumps are things yeah. to be concealed and other things to be revealed. Whereas I actually saw it as... Um, I mean, Trini and Susanna kind of put it in their own words when they went on to uh, Jonathan Ross. He was like, uh, there's some amazing like archive footage of that time. I mean, Susanna takes off her spanks and Jonathan uh, cleans his desk with them. I mean, can you imagine that <laughs> happening now? That was very over time. But, you know, he asked them, he says, you're just, are you not making women feel bad about their bodies? Like, most people have, you know, lumps and bumps and we shouldn't be telling them that they have to cover them up. And what they said, which I think is a really good point, is they said, Look, everywhere you go now, you're being encouraged. You're being encouraged to go on diets, to get liposuction, to do this, that, and the other. We're saying you can feel great about yourself through the clothes that you wear. Don't touch your body. Don't change your body. But learn how to accentuate what you see as your best bits. Well, it's kind of what they see as their best bits. Um, and then you don't need to do any of those things. And now that almost feels quite radical. Yeah, it. You know what? It really does. God, I hadn't even thought. It's mad that that feels radical. So, <laughs> I know, it is also like, I mean, they are all shoehorned into a a, a midi skirt. Yeah. 
um, a knee-high LK Bennett boot and a, a very specific haircut. So there is yeah, quite the a chunky specific... highlights. Yeah, exactly the chunky highlights. But the thing is, you you for this show, you have trawled through however many hours of footage and different kinds of shows all from all over the world. But if we're talking about this in a sentimental garbage context, there's so much about reality TV that is like disturbing, disquieting, and like as one like reviewer pointed out, and I thought it was like a good point. The point of it is sometimes that it's disquieting, right? The point of it is that you're having this struggle with yourself of um of whether or not it's okay for you to watch this. But what's worth keeping in reality TV? Like, what do you think contributes to a common good that reality TV gave us? That is a very interesting question. Um, I would say one of the most obvious common goods is that it allowed us to see how other people live. So allows everyone I think at some point because it's such an enormous genre now to see how people who aren't like them live and I think to see the commonalities I find it really interesting that the same producers a lot of the same producers made um The Only Wears Essex and Made in Chelsea because they're obviously set in uh completely different um they're set in different places but there's also just there's a vast amount of wealth disparity between the two they have they have very different values like a lot of the TOWIE castmates still live at home um have really strong bonds with their family you know family doesn't for the most part really feature or made in Chelsea um they've got very different aspirations like a lot of it is really different but there are really strong threads to be drawn between the two and I think Originally, I think reality TV was really powerful because you were seeing lots of people on telly who hadn't been cast on telly before. You know, on Big Brother specifically, you saw Pete, who had Tourette's. Nadia was the first trans um, person, I think, to be seen on mainstream TV. And did she win? She won, yeah. exactly. Nadia won. Um, and then... And then I think, and then of course, Jade Goody, you know, there was a lot of hullabaloo around kind of how people like her shouldn't be on TV. Um, so much classism. And now I think it's more just that you get an insight into into different worlds. I kind of love that you can watch, I mean, it's like, you know, quite unrealistic, but you can watch Selling Sunset and you can learn a little bit about property. You can watch The Great British Sewing Bee and you can learn a little bit about sewing. You can watch you know Caleb Cooper on Diddley Squat Farm and learn a little bit about farming um it's it's a really broad church now so that is that is a good and I, I I agree with you and I think as well that like the thing with reality tv is that it is on the whole cheaper to make than a scripted drama right well this is what I thought and this is right. what Sharin thought but I remember one of us saying it to a producer I can't remember which one probably one of the more juggernauty ones yeah and he or she was like, that is such a misnomer. Really? Because they have to they have to have so many cameras to get precise moments. They often have to reshoot scenes if they haven't got like the exact nugget. And they're filming so much to get so little. Yes. Yeah, no, that's true. They have people sort of around the clock, don't they, really? But I guess that the point that I'm trying to make is that like for some reason, reality TV, it, it almost becomes like a test pilot for the kinds of characters and situations that mainstream media isn't brave enough or doesn't have the market testing to back up because I guess mainstream media we're talking like prestige TV drama or film or whatever they are just like they're still overwhelmingly white overwhelmingly skinny overwhelmingly all those things that we're used to seeing and actually reality TV 
on the whole is a more diverse space in terms of the kinds of people that you're seeing? I think it really depends on the show, actually. I think that's big, true. I mean, yeah, I think as I say, it's Brother, not a monolith. Yeah. I think Big Brother was. Um, I think a lot of the shows since have really struggled and are yeah. and are really white. I think Laguna, The Hills, um, Towie, Made in Chelsea, although that one's getting better. Real Housewives, Selling Sunset. You know, Selling Sunset only just got their first non-white realtor. Uh, no, I, thi- I think... <laughs> the first non-white realtor. I think it's got... And there's actually a show... Oh, I can't remember where it is. There's, a, there's one that's been set up in contrast, which is an all-black cast of realtors. I can't remember where it's right. set in America. I would say it's got a bit of a race problem historically, reality TV. Because also there's a lot around Love Island, isn't there, how undiverse it is. And obviously we're about to come to the new series, so I'm very interested to see... Yes, I, I guess I was thinking, again, this is completely my experience of um, of reality TV, because as we say, it's not a monolith of, um, you know, watching RuPaul's Drag Race and see, and yes. ha- having watched <clears throat> that for 12 years at this point, yeah. and having watched these people, these um, these queer people, like people of, most of the winners are people of colour, and watching them cross over into this mainstream success totally watching them go to the Met Gala watching them really break into these mainstream areas where they would not have been invited to before and now they're the stars they have become like the rock stars of this generation maybe Drag Race is too specific of an example maybe it's an outlier rather than a that's what I wonder is it like exactly is it the exception like is that is that bleeding out to the rest of reality TV or is it still quite siloed as something wonderful and exceptional yeah, perhaps, yeah. But even then... I'm not sure, you know. I, yeah, I, I actually... Do, I'm, I can see your point. I'm, I'm on the fence about that. Mm. The unpopular middle ground. Because <laughs> I'm not... I'm basically not entirely... I'm not entirely sure. I can't decide if I think... In ways, I think it has been pioneering. But I still think the majority of shows are reflecting fairly conventional values. I mean, okay. definitely a lot of those lifestyle shows like Tawia Made in Chelsea and Real Housewives and um, even to an extent the Kardashians. Like, you know, it is about pursuing the perfect partner and the house and the children and the business. Yeah. It's about a load of tick boxes, really, which is hard to resist. I'm not like, that's not, I'm not saying that as a criticism, but I think it is a reflection a lot of the time, which is also why I find reality TV so interesting is because I think it is such an amazing reflection of where we are with like cultural values and standards and social mores. Yeah. So if like if you're talking about like a a Maiden Chelsea or a Towie, which you documented on, on your series, this thing of like, to me, these values that's I'm like, oh, my God, I, having never seen it, being like, oh, my God, are we still there? Like these things of women being called sluts and like the guys getting absolutely no flack whatsoever and this idea of girls who sleep around being sort of used up and and not worth anything you know but did you find that quite shocking i couldn't believe when we were re-watching them i was staggered by how much yeah women were referred to as kind of property yeah you know like my bird she's mine yeah people yeah. being the worst kind of insult you could give was to someone being a slut and a slag and that was in the hills and Laguna as well and it didn't just come from men that would be that would be a way for women to dismiss other women but I'm wondering if we're seeing a shift now um Kasia Delgado one of the culture writers we interviewed for the Tawia Made in Chelsea episode cited this recent episode where a young castmate called Chloe Brockett has slept with another contestant called James Locke and people were kind of dissing her a bit for that. And she was she sort of refused to take it. Yeah, she was like, yeah. no, we were both single. 
I can do that. Like, I'm not, you know, she was like, kind of like, I'm not having it. Refuse to be shamed or cowed by it. Yeah. So maybe it's shifting. But yeah, for the most part, you see a lot of, and there's a lot of toxic masculinity in it. Huge. Like a lot of the men sort of telling their girlfriends what they're going to do. And that's present from the start. I mean, I think the first episode of TOWIE is one of the best examples of reality TV I've ever seen. It's just pure theatre. Someone, you know, giving a vajazzle to another teenager in her garden shed. Like Mark and Arge driving round. And, and Mark, the, Mark's first words are birds, birds, birds. <laughs> and, you know, he says in this first episode that he wishes he could put his girlfriend on ice for nine years and on freezer when he's a bit older and he's ready to settle down. Um, I mean, we've all been there. <laughs> but he, you know, what, what is so fascinating in that is like one of the arguments that him and his fiance have, and he basically proposes to this poor woman just to kind of lock her down, and um, is he doesn't want her coming to his parties. And he's a club promoter. His mum and his sister are at his pool parties and she's not allowed to come because she'll cramp his style. And that is now, I think, we would use certain labels for that. I think what's... Yeah, of course. For that behaviour. Like, this is something that you return to a lot in the series with... Um, and what's brilliant about it as well is that you... I really... This is this is not an ad. I really just fucking love this series. Um, is that you, you get this incredible you. access to so many of these producers who help make these shows. And... Like, it's amazing to me. And like, you can look at this this footage now and be like, well, that was clearly a form of gaslighting or emotional abuse. You get, you see, there's a lot of these, you cover it in The Hills, in um, The Real Housewives, in TOWIE, of these people who are clearly having these sort of quite abusive relationships or certainly quite toxic relationships. And you confront a lot of these producers about the things they allowed, encouraged, documented. And what I found so amazing was almost unilaterally even with some of these producers that you speak to, who like this was 15 years ago, they sort of refuse to give in on the most part and, and tell and admit guilt or admit responsibility or admit that perhaps they were showing something that needed to be kept private or for the you know safety of the person being filmed needed to not be filmed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? What was that like to be to watch something that is so clearly, obviously problematic or uncomfortable and then talk to the person who greenlighted it and for them to be like, no, I think actually we needed to see that and I regret nothing. I think we were really trying to resist mapping. I mean, obviously, that to a certain extent we do do this, but we were trying not to map too many con contemporary values onto stuff made then because the stuff made then is never going to fare well. Is it? It's always, always going to come up short. And I feel like in the way we're making documentaries now, which have like a big nostalgic element, there's a real tendency to be like a yeah. bit like, this would never happen now. No, of course it wouldn't. We've moved on. Mm -hmm. As as Shirin says, like, it's actually been from like 2010 to 2022. Yes, it's only been 12 years, but culturally it's actually been like a lot more. But at the same time, what I did want is to get into their heads at the time and wonder if they had any reservations. And actually, I'm really interested that you felt like a lot of them were not for turning because I found a lot of them actually much more thoughtful than I thought I would. I thought mm. they'd be quite combative. And except for Nelly Galan, the creator of the swan who's sort of <laughs> specifically bit, who I was thinking gets about a bit yeah tense. <laughs> gets a bit tense there um but with uh you know with Phil Edgar Jones big brother I don't think he regretted it but I still felt like he was quite thoughtful about thinking about you know with in that instance I said did you not did you wonder about pulling Jade out before yeah. of course she made those racist comments towards Shil Pachetti and about Shil Pachetti. Because when you watch it back, you can see her getting increasingly 
emotional um, and, and really vulnerable in the diary room. I, watching it, I think you can tell something's about to blow up. And I wondered why they didn't pull her out. And he said, and I do understand this, he said the whole format is built around seeing what happens. Like, viewers yeah. hated it when the hand of the producer came in. Yeah. This is not an interventionist medium. Now, on the flip side, you can be like, of course it's an interventionist medium because you're literally putting these people in a house, you're giving them food, you're making them go tasks. in fancy dress. So it's, it's a really difficult one. And I don't, I actually really think, when I went into making this, I just thought that a lot of reality producers were quite... Um, heartless I suppose yeah and actually speaking to a lot of them what I think it was now is there was a real wrestle between like how much responsibility is on the producers and how much is it on the people they're filming how much should they get involved because you know the producer on the hills said well this was their relationship like they had their friends and their family to say to talk to them about that like that wasn't mm. our that wasn't our job. Mm. Um, but then Sarah Dilliston, a wonderful producer who co-created Made in Chelsea and Towie, there was a relationship she was uncomfortable about. And so she filmed it less. Mm. She did not oh, make yes. that, yeah, that yeah. relationship the, the spine, the narrative spine of any episodes going forwards. And I think that's, I think that's possibly the best way she could have done with it. Yeah. She did not want to intervene and tell these young people she didn't feel like that was her job and I do actually mm. understand that mm. that she really was trying to get like the appropriate line and so her line as someone that worked with them in a professional situation was to just film them less um but I think it's a really tricky one and that was kind of a question we wanted to ask across the whole series is like where does the responsibility lie does it lie with the people who go on the shows so like you know self-agency mm -hmm individual agency, I don't know if self-agency is a word. Does it lie with the producers making the shows and editing, deciding what goes in or out? Yeah. Or does it lie with the commissioners, the TV commissioners? Because of course, if, if there's not a commissioner to commission the show, that show's not getting made. So, yeah. and the answer by the way is quite unsatisfying. It's a bit of everything. <laughs> well, this is the thing, you have this episode called The Wild West, right? The Wild West <laughs> yes. Years. Where that, where, in those situations, you're like, yes, the responsibility absolutely lies in the hands of the commissioners because anybody can sit in a room and come up with some mental idea, <laughs> like like shattered. Which, which is, is what they were doing. They were absolutely, I mean, they were just throwing, there was so much money at that time because of the success of Big Brother, which when you speak to like execs from back in the day, God, I wanted to be back in the room in like 99, you know, or in 2000, I suppose, when the first Big Brother was, there would be some big media party because oh, there was so much money then, Caroline. All oh, they did is go God, to like big media parties mashups and we joined were, the media at the wrong time we man. absolutely like, no expenses no champagne yeah. not even a sparkling wine <laughs> no taxis yeah so they would all leave these media parties to go home and watch big brother it was like a totally normal thing to do everyone was obsessed and so all of these commissioners and young and young and thrusting as Shirin called them young and thrusting producers were like desperate to come up with something yeah. because there was yeah. just all this money. So they're just throwing shit at the walls, which is how, you know, how you got this something about Miriam. It's how you got shattered. It's how you got, who's your daddy, which I'd never heard of before Shirin dug that one up. That disturbed me. <laughs> I mean, the people we interviewed were like, 
pretty okay about it. But the concept is really That's fucked up. That's what I was the most surprised by is that on that episode where it just seems so, so bizarre that like these people were subjected to it. So, so who's your daddy? From what I understand, <laughs> it was, ta- and I understood where it came from because um, for years, I mean, I guess before A noble had, goal. A noble goal. <laughs> Who is your daddy? Um, before you had um, reality TV as we know it now, our fix for seeing, as you say, how do other people live? How freakish can other people get? Was um, your Jerry Springer's, your Maury's, Jenny Jones, all, Sally, Jesse, Raphael, was those sort of talk shows, right? Where you would pull people on and sort of do um, what's it called, paternity tests live on air and reveal that stuff. And that those like, you are not the father sort of moments were gold I remember them from watching them from such a young age and it was so suspenseful before I even understood what DNA or paternity or semen even was right yes and being like oh what's the mystery being like seven years old and so taking that and extending it to reuniting women with their birth fathers but having two decoy fathers who are paid actors giving sincere monologues to these women saying you know when I left your mother it was the hardest thing I ever did and he's a paid actor and she has to guess <laughs> did you watch that show about a year ago god I loved it Stacey Dooley my house where three people have to try and convince Stacey Dooley that it's their oh. house and they like what? and they'll be like this is my husband and two of them will be actors <laughs> it's don't so do it, that to Stacey Dooley. It's actually a very good show, and um, but it is yeah. It's like that they were ha- they were acting. They were having to convince, and then the adopted child has to guess, um, or uh, not always adopted child. I think it you know could be an estranged parent. But yeah, I mean, uh, very very unethical. But we the the um, father and daughter we interviewed, TJ and Dusty, they they had nothing but good things to say. I know that. And same with the, the, the cast of Shattered. Had nothing I but know. good things to say. Nothing good, good things to say. Yeah. They were made to stay awake for like seven days, which I think is three days short of legal torture. It's so funny. I mean, some of the things as well, like as an insomniac, I find that absolutely agony. I actually couldn't watch too much of that. Um, but, you know, they would have grannies reading them stories and they would like pump up the heating really high. <laughs> So so okay if we say if we if we say that reality TV is a reflection of the sort of social mores that are contemporary to people at the time right what that wild those wild west years we understand why they were made because the young the young thrusting gunslingers of the TV world wanted to just come up with something mad that would get eyeballs or whatever but our thirst for those things what do you think it said about us do you do you think that we were genuinely a crueler people in the early noughties or was there something else going on because i don't think we talk about like, oh, it was a cruel time. It was like peak, you know, stalking Britney. It was peak sort of like the 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 fall, like the rise of blog culture and the fall of tabloid magazines. And there was this race to the bottom to be very cruel to celebrities to see who could sell the most copies or get the most clicks. So I, I don't know, were people actually crueler or were just larger media landscapes converging to make cruel content? I think that's really interesting that you raised Britney because making this documentary series after making one about Britney, obviously a lot of this is overlapping at the same time, that same gold rush of uh, celebrity content and blogs. Yes, I think absolutely shifting media landscapes, landscapes is a big part of it. What you hear quite a lot is people saying, oh, well, it's the viewer's fault they wanted this, but that's a chicken and egg situation. You don't know you want something until you're offered it. If you've never tried something, how do you know you like it? And so I don't think it's that people were more cruel. I think it's just like the more 
this idea of like shock culture, it was like real shock time around then because that was also when you were reading a lot about like Octomum. Yeah. Octomum! And it was the time as well of like extreme anorexia in Hollywood, yeah. you know, size double zero. It was just a time of like extremes and there was this like element of sort of freak culture about it. Yes. And so I think it was more just a time of, um, I don't know, a collective garishness of like, look what's out there, look what we can turn human beings into look what stories we can tell um because suddenly there was the means to make it mm. there was the internet allowing these stories to sort of spread there was the access there was a lot of like just quite weird stuff happening at the same time i don't think it's that people became crueler i find that really funny i don't think people are any kinder now like there is such an element of of course, partly we were looking back at these shows and we were like, lol, how did they ever get made? But I also don't believe that necessarily people are kinder now and um, that's why these shows like don't get made because, yeah, tabloids aren't really mean about women in the way they used to be. Mm. It's all happening on social media. Yeah, It's no. all happening beneath the line and it's all happening in the comments under the articles. The Daily Mail yeah. put up a might put up a picture saying like, you know, shapely blah 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 on the beach they know they're putting up a picture where the comments they're mm. just they're just leaving the viewers to do it for the readers yeah, to do it for yeah. them the, the flaunter curves and then a clearly sort of like unflattering picture you'll of somebody still see, you yeah. still see a size 10 woman you know being called she's fat on daily mail online you yeah. still see comments under the line people still get it in their inbox i mean even like broadcasters regularly share screenshots of being told to kill themselves, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. like, it's absolutely still happening. The whole be kind, hashtag be kind. I mean, that was the amazing thing. When, you know, when ITV started circulating that hashtag be kind, um, after, I think it was after Caroline Flack's very sad death. Yeah. I think that it was around then, hashtag oh, yeah. be kind on social media. Three days after hashtag be kind, one of like the then Love Islanders sisters was like, guys, pretty sure you're not getting the memo you know she was still getting messages in her sister's inbox telling her to kill herself it made no difference no no and like yeah it, it is this thing where like you as i say big fan of competition reality shows um <laughs> <laughs> this is well, this is my only um real expertise although the great thing about the pod was that like i felt like there's this whole episode that you did on the kardashians where you sort of compared Oprah visiting their house like a royal visit. It felt like Thackeray. It was so good. Oh yeah, Shireen is like... So Shireen went on Mastermind and she asked if she could do the Kardashians as a special subject. Oh, so and good. I think they said they couldn't accommodate at that time. <laughs> so yeah, that is that is Shireen. She knows, I mean, everything that there is to be known about them. But the... So the... But yeah, you don't have to have watched the shows and you don't have to love reality TV, I think, to listen to it. I was no. very like... In this, in anything I make, my whole kind of premise, I want it to be like, you don't have to be obsessed with them. We'll yeah. do all that for you. And then hopefully we'll distill it into like what you need to take away from it. But the the thing about the, the, the reason I brought up the competition reality show thing is, that, is because like, there's definitely this sense of like every every show I've ever watched, and maybe this is like the same with Love Island. There is a um a drop off point of quality where first couple of seasons, not a lot of money, not a lot of resources, just a clever casting of entertaining people in weird situations, right? And like people who are put under pressure because they're in a competition setting, or and and you know the it often comes out later that you know it was the situation was made deliberately uncomfortable for them, like they were slightly underfed and slightly underslept and. 
god and like very cold the entire time they were in the workroom or whatever um and so you had these like brilliant interpersonal dynamics that could get incredibly like spicy and dramatic and then um so then that'll build whatever show i'm talking about up to maybe a season 4 or season 5 point mm-hmm. and then it will hit a social media moment if it's doing well and the people the contestants will get trolled the uh, some contestants will always do... a sign a show is doing well. That's it. If someone when if the, the death more, threats come, the more people are told to kill themselves. Um, that is so depressing. That is a direct indicator of how much money they are making off of these poor people. Um, uh, uh, so people will start making uh, tangential careers off of it. You know, um, obviously Love Island, the sort of boohoo influencer kind of market that launched after that. Um, and then the quality of the show will dip because you mm-hmm. will will begin a population of contestants who are self-aware about both the good and evil that the show can do. So it's incredibly hard for a show to sustain its momentum after that sort of in, that invisible tipping point, you know? Yeah, I mean, that happens on all of them. It happened on Big Brother after it moved. Big Brother had a pretty long period of reign. I say that it had 10 series and then obviously it moved to Channel 5 and that's when, I mean, even the host of that, Brian Dowling, admitted that that's when Mm. there was a drop-off. We've seen it with Love Island for sure because they became, I mean, we call it an influencer sausage factory because Mm. almost every contestant is going on to get a big social media following and a fast fashion collaboration. And you've seen them really struggle in recent years. And the exec producer that I interviewed, Richard Cowles, he even admitted that it got harder and harder to cast people who weren't there with a very specific goal. Mm. But I think what's also interesting is sometimes when they go for so long, they come back around again. So Made in Chelsea is on episode 23 and it's having a real revival in part because there's this really brilliant French girl called Maeva who is incredibly dramatic and extra and gives just so much storyline. And it's kind of revived the show a bit. And a lot of people I know who watch it are very much like, this is the best series yet. And I'm seeing a lot more kind of chatter around it. So sometimes when they go for a really, really long time, they can have those like peaks and troughs. It's quite rare, I think, for a commissioner to hang in that long to allow a show to do that. Tower and Made in Chelsea really are stalwarts. They've had like mm. 12 years. So they're kind of allowed to wax and wane, I think, a bit more like mm. Neighbours, although even, you know, Neighbours has now been canned. So to be honest, I, I imagine those shows won't last like a huge amount of time longer because I also just don't think that those lifestyle shows are... I think a lot of people like competition-based shows, like yeah. you're saying. A lot of the really successful ones are competition-based shows. Or like weirdly niche shows, like Below Deck being on boats or Selling yes. Sunset being in property. I think there's like a return of like almost like workplace reality TV. People love the workplace reality TV. To go back to that French girl that you mentioned, I think, if we're, again, to go back to... And also the, the thing of the things about reality TV worth keeping. If I were to like think about a world where reality TV never existed, that would also be a world where Gemma Collins never existed. And that is too heartbreaking to imagine. <laughs> like, one no, of, again... One of their most... Yeah, I mean, one of the most successful exports, the GC, isn't she? Like, the fact that I've never seen an episode of TOWIE, but I have seen so many, like, when I'm hungover, I'll just watch a compilation of, of GC. Of her falling through the floor. <laughs> yeah! I just... And this is the thing, it's like, and the fact that uh, this French girl was able to rescue kind of a dying show and now everyone's watching it again. 
what I find so compelling is that historically we have this really set idea in our minds of like what people are are worth rewarding and worth seeing, right? And and this thing of like they have to have a discernible talent. And for us that generally means like acting or singing. If we talk about like the majority of very famous people who were taught to respect, like Brian Cranston, he's a good actor and therefore it's good that I know his name. <laughs> like And it's to me it feels so arbitrary because Star power is star power. Like the thing that makes me want to look at Brian Cranston is the same thing that makes me want to look at Gemma Collins. Is that there's something compelling? It doesn't really matter that like he's playing sort of fucking Dalton Trumbo or Walter White or whatever. He's just good at occupying a screen and doing a personality. And Gemma Collins is doing the exact same thing. And the fact that I don't know why I've picked Brian Cranston, <laughs> but. The fact that we we've drawn these really hard and fast sort of like sociocultural lines between what what is des- what person is deserving of fame and what person has star power and what person is just a sort of a waste of space and just is there because of some ridiculous public interest kind of thing. I just think like for years we've had like actors and famous people famous for sort of playing themselves. Like if we think about like a Mae West character from the you know twenty thirties and forties, she was somebody who was just sort of like, she had taken a, her a public persona of what people thought she was like and just played it out over films and musicals and TV shows for years and years and years. And to me, that's exactly what Gemma Collins is doing. You know, I think she is the modern day Mae West. I mean, that's a conversation that we had. I think it was in the Kardashian episodes because one of our contributors was saying, you know, what makes people so cross about how famous and rich they are is that they're talentless. And I was like, and I was like, can we just pick that apart for a second? Because I don't think they are talentless. I think it is a talent to hold mm. court like that on TV, to build the kind of business that you have, mm. that they have. And I agree with Gemma Collins, like the things that make a successful reality star there are, there are common ingredients. All really successful reality stars, whether it's Gemma Collins, whether it's Maura from Love Island, mm. randomly thinking of her, whether it's the French girl in Made in Chelsea, is they have to have charisma mm. and they have to have energy and they have to have a kind of greater sense of their own persona Mm. you've got you have got to really I think you've got to really believe in yourself and I mean the GC really believed in herself from the beginning from when she was selling cars she was a she was a car a used car salesman when she takes off her sort of dressing gown you ain't getting this candy you ain't getting this candy but Arj did get that candy um but there's also you know she had uh, her version of the oscars called the gemmas um that episode's really really great and she also one of my favorite things as well is that she would have she was obsessed with spirituality so she would do champagne readings Towie's version of uh, tea readings mm-hmm. and there would be this woman being like so she'd be like so when am i gonna get my husband and this woman would be like well i'm looking in when darling when call through call through she'd be like well i don't have an exact date <laughs> she's like that's what i need darling come on call. you know it was just like absolute like determination and her i mean how to be a diva her autobiography is so funny she's like i she absolutely said you know she says i knew my calling and and when showbiz came along i milked its udders until <laughs> the metaphors are quite something um so i completely agree with you like i think people like the GC and Maura and various other kind of really iconic um, 
reality stars. I mean, the this morning's presenter, Alison Hammond, who started on Big Brother. All these people, Rylan, X Factor, all oh. these people I think would have broken through anyway. I just think that that was the medium they came through. However, I think there's an awful lot of joss. Oh, yeah. There, there are a lot of there people. Are, there are probably hundreds of thousands of people now who have been on reality TV. Mm-hmm. There's too many, and I actually get quite stressed wondering where we're going to put them all. It's why <laughs> it's why there's its own, like, ecosystem. You know, so you now mm. go on. So let's say you go on... Also, I'm not a fan of Geordie Shaw. Got to put it out there. That, I feel like, is a real, like, race to the bottom in terms of reality mm. TV. But I think you've got these people who start on, say, like, Geordie Shaw or Love Island or something like that, and then they go on to... Um, the really successful ones get to go on to the jump. The less successful ones go on to celebs go dating. Mm-hmm. And then they go on to X on the beach. Oh, yeah. And then they go on to... What ones would you go on after the, that? The, the MTV ones seem to be the real bottom of the barrel. Well, lots ones. of them get those successful spin-offs. So often when they have a baby, so lots of the Towie lot when they had a baby then went on to have their own like spin-offs like Sam and Billy Fairs had the baby diaries. Yeah. Fern Cotton had one. There's basically about six or seven shows that you can go on to. I mean, I think mm-hmm. Alison Hammond's done 12. Yeah, yeah. Um, And you don't have to ever really leave that ecosystem. No. But I think it's hard work. They have to keep themselves like endlessly relevant yeah and like it's so weird when you when you watch reality shows and you you can you you can so immediately identify or maybe I don't know maybe it's a personal opinion thing or personal taste thing the people who have the thing like they're they're people who are like nice to look at because they're hot and um, they're willing to have drama with people and it's a thing when I see those people I I get that same feeling that you do of like where are we going to put them all (laughs) like these unskilled work you know the the, the dynamite string is going to burn out so quickly and where are we going to put you after that but then there's other people where it's like the thing I'm thinking about is I got into Celebrity SAS oh right yeah I haven't done that one last summer and Kerry Katona was on it and there's something about Kerry Katona that lights up lots of different parts of me at once that are confusing. Where Man, she's worked to keep that going, hasn't she? She has worked. Because it's this thing of like, it's almost like this, it's like Dostoevsky's Gemma Collins. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like, I think she has some, some this glimmer of charisma that makes her sort of beautiful to look at. And there's a, there's a friendliness and there's a joy to her. But there's also this, like, this darkness that's around her. Like, mm, you can see that mm. she has these very, very real demons. And there's this fucking remarkable scene. And I mean, remarkable in the sense of like, what's happening is bizarre. What's happening is bizarre and constructed and mental. But she is performing authentically. So what happens is they're like, when someone fails at being in the SAS that week, um, they are taken from their bunk, a bag is placed on their head and they are dragged into interrogation room with a bear bulb and two fucking army guys. And they say, right, why why aren't you like, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and there's this thing where it's like, they're trying to do this sort of like army butch drag realness thing of like being real army guys, but also being produced at the same time, trying to get story out of her. And then she just sort of like has this total breakdown about the death of her ex-husband and how he abused her and how she's never quite, she's never been able to sort of negotiate both the rage she feels at him for abusing her, but also the rage she feels that he is now dead and he'll, she'll never get to have that closure and her children will never get to have that closure and just this rage and this inertia she feels. And 
I just couldn't believe that on something so ridiculous and so constructed, there was also no not one doubt in my mind that Kerry Katona was having a real feeling. You know? Oh no! I mean, I think that's what is so interesting about it. There's there's an academic called Erin Myers who raised such a good question that I then thought about. I interviewed her like early on into making it, and then thought about it the whole way through. We were making the show. Is she was like it kind of when people say that like, how real is reality TV? It kind of depends on how you define reality. Yeah. Because you might be constructing certain situations, but those emotional responses are real and can you get anything realer than what you've just said about Kerry yeah. Katona I mean I think also I was just thinking when you were saying that there what slightly worries me about the trajectory this this idea that you have to build a like career within being a reality show is that quite often you end up mining your own trauma a lot mm. that's happened with other mm. contestants like Lauren Goodger and I that makes me feel really sad because they have been sort of basically told that they will be financially rewarded if they keep mining that's and you've mm. kind of seen it happen with Jordan Jordan Katie Price she's yeah. not a reality star but she sort of is now and I mean Kerry Katona started in a pop band she didn't start as a reality star but I think the quite dangerous thing now is because there are so many opportunities to carry on this fame people now look at reality tv fame with this idea of longevity and actually the best thing would be you go on this show you have a bit of a lol you make a bit of money and then you go back to your job but the other problem is lots of people who go on these shows are really fucking young like yeah. i think all the time about the fact that i would be too old to go on love island it's hard i to just think like about, and yeah. i think of myself as relatively youthful so they haven't built up these careers to go back to and mm. and when they have that's when something really lovely and interesting happens and that's happened in the case of dr alex george mm -hmm. from love island who's become one of the most famous doctors in the UK, was working on the front line during COVID, has been named the Youth Mental Ambassador for the UK. Um, he didn't really shine that brightly on the show, definitely didn't have any really lasting love connections. And was recruited via Bumble, right? Was 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 recruited by Bumble and really didn't want to do it, but they obviously knew that they were like, we've got to get someone in there that's got, you know, this kind of worthy job. But he has now made such an impact going back to his job, mm. resisting most of the like fripperies and trimmings and going back to his job with this kind of new rocket launcher, rocket yeah. booster of fame in order to do his job in a different way and reach and reach more people. Sentimental garbage. On this podcast, we talk a lot about the things that we love that society can sometimes make us feel ashamed of. And for me, one of those things is makeup. Now, I know all of the feminist arguments against makeup, how we don't need it, and the patriarchy creates impossible standards for us to live by, and we're all in a war against father time. All of that stuff, all great points, but what these arguments often miss is just how much joy and pleasure you can get out of your daily makeup routine. How it can be so meditative and playful and creative. And at the moment, NARS Orgasm Blush is a big part of that daily pleasure for me. So for me, my routine goes like this. I put on my favourite music. At the moment, that's Denise Chala, who's an Irish rapper, and she's brilliant. I sit in front of my dressing table and I look at myself. I look at my acne scars and the new and ever-growing lines around my forehead and this like faint little blonde moustache that I have that maybe like I should wax but secretly I kind of enjoy it because I think it looks dapper. I look at the scar on my chin from when I fell off my bike and the scar on my hairline from when I hit my head off a rock pool on holidays when I was five and I think I actually like my face. 
I like spending time with it. And I'm never going to be the kind of person who meditates, but makeup sort of does that job for me. Putting on makeup does that job for me. It makes me think about where I've been and where I'm going and the people I've been and the person I'm going to be. So I put on my concealer and my foundation and then I put on a sweep of NARS Orgasm Blush. The peachy pink buildable powder has helped put NARS on the map. When I first started using makeup, I didn't really understand the point of blush because I spent so much time red in the face anyway that I just didn't bother. As an adult, however, there's nothing like that healthy, sexy bit of color in your cheeks to make you feel as alive and as energized as you look. The great thing about NARS Orgasm is that it really does look like a natural flush, like you've been laughing or running or maybe had a quick afternoon tumble upstairs. It's about pleasure, it's about being stimulated, it's about being up for it. Up for a laugh, up for a drink, whatever. It gives me so much joy. It makes me think about all the other tiny things in my day that give me this weird amount of pleasure. Like when I'm walking my dog and she catches a tennis ball in midair and both of us look at each other and we're like, yeah, I saw that, I saw that. <laughs> or when you're watching a movie with someone and you're both under the same blanket and for some reason it feels way nicer than when you have separate blankets. Or that moment on a road trip where you see the sea for the first time and you stick your hand out the window. Or when you're on a train and you have a really friendly conversation with a stranger that lasts the perfect length of time and it doesn't get awkward and it feels like you could be great friends if you didn't have to get off at this stop. Stuff like that, stuff that feels insignificant, but really it's the stuff of pleasure. Feel the rush of NARS Orgasm Blush, the peachy pink shade that started it all. The weightless buildable blush is also available in a mini size so you can get your glow on the go. Shop now at nars.co.uk and get 15% off with the code SENTIMENTAL15. And the same thing happened, I think, with Megan Barton Hansen. She said, I mean, look, she hasn't... Who is she? She was on Love Island and okay. she was that contestant who everyone fancied. It was like every paper and every meme was just about how sexy she was. Mm. And then, of course, there was a backlash where they circulated this picture of what she looked like at 15. And she said how, like, oh entirely... She was like, I knew that people would pick, like... Because she worked in the... sex, She was a sex worker before. And she was like, I knew that I would get picked apart for doing sex work. And I knew I'd get picked apart for having surgery. I didn't know that, like my teenage self would be mocked like that but she said she had a real decision on her hands like does she become does she stay in like the fast fashion world that is the one that instantly presents itself when you come out of the show or did she go back into destigmatizing certain mm. areas of sex work which is what she wanted to do and she did take some collaborations because obviously they paid insanely well but she went back onto OnlyFans, which she had left because the producers of love island said you can't do love island if you have an OnlyFans account. And she now does quite a lot of campaigns around stuff that have traditionally had shame around them. So campaigns to do with um, periods and um, masturbation. And, you know, she said, like, it's not that sexy on paper. I don't think many other influencers would want mm. to be advertising period pants. But she, again, has like gone back to what she did before. She's used that fame to go back mm. to what she did before to do some quite interesting work. So when they have had a career before, that is kind of like... That's almost when it's best, when it, perhaps yeah. they're best equipped. Yeah, it's canny, isn't it? And it's like, I, I often say this to like friends who are newly single and they're setting up dating apps, where it's like, you don't want to have a very general profile where you have like 
7,000 matches and only two of them you like. You want to have a very specific profile where you attract, you match with 10 people and seven of them you go on a date with and two of them you sleep with kind of so thing. So a niche. A niche. It's finding a niche and like um, that girl, obviously, sorry, what's her name again? Megan Barton Hansen. Megan Barton Hansen. It's having awareness of who you are, what people are interested in about you and staying true to that and expanding that in ways mm. that are sort of clever and unexpected. That's the real goal. And it's the mm. same with influencers. We just did an episode on influencers as well. It's it's and, and it's the same thing with Gemma Collins. Like, I'm sure there's a world in which Gemma Collins could, like, lose a dramatic amount of weight and act sort of in a way that is more of like a mainstream idea of what fame should be. But she's kind of clever enough to know what people enjoy about seeing her totally. and exploiting that to the full, its full extent. The least successful influencers and reality stars that you see are the ones that are constantly just trying to blend into this morass of what attractive is, what nice is, what popular is. It's, it's like it's the stories that you teach to, you know, preteen girls, right? It's like, find the thing that makes you... <laughs> Totally. Specifically interesting and just ride that out. Milk its udders, as Gemma says, you know. I think there's something quite interesting there. And then, like, I was talking about, I think I was talking about this to my husband this morning. We were talking about this idea of, like, when when diversity kind of enacts real change or where it's just, like, diversity. Just plonking people on TV Mm. doesn't count as diversity because Mm. it it just depends what storylines they're given. It depends how the other characters react to them. You know, it it depends on how the audience receives them. And so historically that's been the complaint about Love Island, right? It's like, Mm. oh, but there were black people in the villa. But yes, the black women were always picked last. Um, They weren't given kind of the storylines. You know, Mm -hmm. a, a lot of people we interviewed said we don't actually want to see black women on Love Island that mm. we don't want to see them treated in a way that they shouldn't be treated that reflects kind of traditional white dating mm. ideals of the white blonde woman always being picked first so it's kind of like well what does diversity look like on TV and with Gemma Collins it's like on one hand it's so lovely because she found her niche on the other hand part of her niche for a little bit of time was that she was bigger than the other girls Mm. and that shouldn't really she shouldn't have had to have been the only like larger woman on TOWIE like she's built her niche out way beyond that but for a period of time that was like what it was which is quite uncomfortable I think yes no you are dead right the thing about TOWIE and Essex in general I find really really fascinating because Gavin's from Essex and he has a very like strained relationship with Towie because he just his idea of Essex is like ancient land of marshes and mystery. I'm from Essex as well. Oh, are you? I didn't yeah, realize. but it's a, it, I mean, it's a it's a county of like you know, it's a big old county. There's lots it's going a, on. Yeah, like, yeah. So I think I think as well because I'm Irish and like <laughs> my, my my the first question my brother ever asked him was, "Do you know Ollie Merce?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's so where Towie is is like a very specific part of Essex. It's the Golden Triangle of yes. Brent, Brentwood. Loughton and I can't remember the third one. Yeah, the rest of Essex is what, definitely what Gavin, not that. Gavin describes as you. What does he say? He said, um, "You can't get the tube home, but you can get a cab from Upminster." Is is what he refers to as the Tower era. It is yeah. exactly, exactly, which is like you know that. So that's like an hour away from where I grew up and there was definitely like no snazzy beauty salons no like yeah I mean no clubs like faces and stuff like that seemed like another world I was always very envious of that world but I do think I'm actually I didn't realise you're from Essex but 
I'm interested in this because I do think there is some, not just Howie, but in every reality show, whether it's Come Dine With Me or anything where they're just like, we're going out to this this bit of Britain to see what these weirdos are doing <laughs> kind of thing. Essex has a very specific cultural identity that makes it just catnip for all reality TV shows. There are more episodes of Come Dine With Me set in Essex than anywhere else. And I do think there's something specific about... All right, there's like an Essex character and like, correct me if I'm wrong. Okay? Yeah, there's a stereotype for sure. But it's, it's one of those things where there's a stereotype that's also true, where it's like a lot of like, you know, people who like maybe moved out from England from, sorry, people who moved out from London with a bit of dosh, yeah. made good. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're larger than life. They love family. They love having people over. They love entertaining. They're like, they're great crack. But there's also, there's a knowingness kind of thing. There's also this thing you always see on Come Dine With Me where you'll get like a bit of an Essex Dolly bird who sort of says a few thick things to sort of like get get everybody warmed up. And you can tell that she knows she's saying a thick thing to get everyone warmed up. And then somebody will underestimate her and she'll sort of counter them in this way that's not like overly intellectual, but a bit like a bit like that viral video of Twiggy asking Woody Allen who his favourite like, like philosopher, philosophers are, you know? They kind of, I think on Tawi what's really like beautiful about it actually is that they both lean into and resist those stereotypes so they're absolutely not afraid to be um you know to be larger than life to be loud and to be glamorous and they're not pretending to have kind of certain aspirations um Mm. you know glamour modeling is something to be proud of on TOWIE. In the first yes, couple of episodes, yes. someone says, you know, my dad was really proud. They, he saw me in a saw me in a magazine. Like they don't, they are they're they're proud of what they stand for. But then there's also this quite funny bit where Amy and Sam find out what how Essex girl is in the dictionary. Mm. And Amy's like, is it not good? And Sam's <laughs> like, no, no, it's like really bad. And Amy's like, someone from Manchester must have written it. But I think, I mean it was really definitely as someone blonde growing up in Essex, like the I had so many of those like you know really revolting Essex girl jokes mm. like they've it's it's definitely a really pejorative idea of around what the Essex girl is like you mm. know they're slutty and trashy and the men are flashy basically mm. and I think what I loved about Towie is that they sort of both they had that tongue-in-cheek kind of embrace of what it was but actually then repackaged it and flung it back at the audience and I think probably made quite a lot of people swallow their words because it was a bit like oh you thought that was something negative did you like Mm. you know here's Mm. here's kind of here's what it actually is but you're right that it is an absolute hotbed for um like lots of x-factor stars come from there not just Ollie Ollie Murs you know I think Stacey Solomon came from there is Ryland from Essex um, yes Ryland's from Essex I, I don't I'm very proud of Ryland I don't know why it's such a it's such a sort of specific place of of talent but perhaps it is because it's kind of been it's when people lean into that and also offer a sort of resistance yeah, at the same yeah. time yeah it, it feels like like a real natural flair for showmanship or something yeah like it's... but it's not like that when you live there this is what yeah. i find so funny it's not like you walk down the street and everyone it's it's not like la la land but i know but i i get it though because being irish and people have such um a cultural idea a specific cultural idea of what you're like and 
I see Irish people performing for English people all the time. Like we sort of like adopt an air of like mystery or like as if like everyone in Ireland genuinely believes in fairies kind of thing. <laughs> and it's like we're, we're kind of doing it as a piss take, but we're kind of doing it because we enjoy the way we're reflected back through their eyes. Do you know what I mean? I think you always amp that up, aren't you? When that becomes like an identifier for you, yeah, then it's it's kind of almost impossible not to yeah not yeah, to yeah. like amp that up a bit to go back to x factor i really loved watching you chart the sort of rise and fall of it and i think like it it is it probably is the biggest competition reality show that the uk has ever had as in every if you think how famous so many of them are now yes yeah like leona lewis and one direction and little mix and and all that and there's something very specific that I think the X Factor tapped in on. Obviously, there's the famous thing of like the cruelty of watching people who have been intentionally deluded by the producers into thinking they could sing, then humiliating themselves. But as it went on, it had this thing where the whole thing of these people living in the judge's house and stuff, it, it made the public believe that it knew how showbiz worked or something. The way that you would watch it would be like... Well, he's very talented, but he's in the over 30s and uh, he's he looks like this. And, and everyone would, I don't know how I can express it properly, but they, the viewer at home was encouraged to think like a music industry exec and be like, oh, the, the people would never accept a pop star who looks like that, forgetting that they themselves were the people. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I find it so, so interesting how competition shows like that that purport to give you um, like a profession at the end of it it tricks its audience into thinking it's it has a controlling stake you know and it understands the in, the industry I think all successful shows do that don't they because yeah. Big Brother and Love Island want you to believe that you at home hold the power yeah but obviously at the end of the day don't hold any power well you do hold the power don't you have the viewing power mm. you the viewer at home decides what shows get recommissioned by whether or not you give them your eyeballs yeah yeah so there is a but yes i think what x factor and those competition shows do is they confer this like false authority on you yes and, that's, and there's that's also the like a proximity isn't yeah. it there's this like it's that false intimacy as well yes yes and the the it, that, that's a there's been a real rise in the last few years of like incredibly niche things like glass blowing and pottery and like <laughs> things that ordinary people just don't even bake off. Everyone's baked a scone at some point. I refuse yeah. to ever bake sourdough. I refuse. I will not have a living bit of goo in my kitchen <laughs> that I then make bread out of. No thanks. But the idea that it, it can convince you in the space of an episode that you're like, I understand pottery now and I understand that as a bad pot. <laughs> that is incredible to me. Yes, yes. No, you're absolutely right. And I hadn't really thought about, hadn't really thought about it like that. But I also wonder if that's where some of the cruelty comes from as well. Mm. Is you sort of like mistakenly think that you know, it's like the Dunning Kruger effect. You like mistakenly yeah. think that you know more than you do. Yeah. Which is like we're all absolutely just Dunning Krugered. Every time you go onto social media, you basically, and you know, you retweet something you've read the first sentence of, you're Dunning Kruger. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Agreeing away. Um, <laughs> and I think that's what reality TV does. And, that, and that's where sometimes that cruelty comes from. It's like, how could you think you're a good singer? Obviously, you're really shit. We can hear you're really shit. Well, probably because several producers had put them through to the next round. And then people like pick up this sort of lingo from the experts and then suddenly everyone's saying, yeah, she's very pitchy. It's like, do you even know what that means when someone is pitchy? I Now every time I say on paper, I'm like, oh, I can't say that anymore because it just sounds like I'm reading from like the Love Island hymn book. On paper? Yeah, if someone looks good on, on paper. paper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like abs- That's like an obsession on paper. Oh, wow, I hadn't even thought of that. And that, like it's it is weird to me that like I think for a long time and obviously this is kind of a uh, a sort of kind of a guilty pleasures podcast and for a long time I think reality TV was considered a guilty pleasure but increasingly the most cerebral women I know are the biggest fans of reality TV like I feel like it's still considered a guilty pleasure just in that when you do watch excessive amounts of it yes you can feel a bit like you've rotted that having watched like 24 hours of the hills or whatever in one weekend i did feel like i would might never get part of my brain back oh yeah there is definitely but then maybe that's just you could say the same if you drunk for 24 hours straight if you ate for 24 hours straight, yeah yeah. nothing should be done for 24 hours straight. (laughs) literally nothing um what is of all the sort of hundreds of hours of reality tv you've had to watch for this show what is the moment where you're like, mm, yes, I'm glad we have this? I think it's that first episode of TOWIE. Really? Yeah. I think it's that first episode of TOWIE. It's just so brilliantly constructed. It feels like, it just feels like a million years ago. It's before everyone had glam. It's before they used to, f- they filmed with those like honey coloured filters. So like mm. Selling Sunset is literally like, it's been filmed through like a Valencia <laughs> filter. They put so much money into the colorization of shows now to make everyone look amazing. Mm. So it just feels like, yeah, I just, I just love it. I just encourage everyone to go watch that episode because I think that that is, that's, that's a great example of just really clever, innovative telly. I do want to watch it now, actually. <laughs> I do think I will. I really will, you know. Please do, please do. <laughs> Pandora Sykes, you have a podcast called Unreal, A Critical History of Reality TV. It's brilliant. And you also have Pieces of Britney, which is um, a docuseries about Britney Spears and our obsession with her. Is there anything else you're promoting at the moment? Um, if, if Unreal, if reality TV is not up your street, then series four of Missing, the podcast about long-term missing people, is mm. also coming out at the moment. And no, I did not time it as such, but I have no say in these things. <laughs> uh, thanks, Pandora. Thank you. This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. The podcast was produced and edited by me, with mix and music by Harry Harris, and artwork by Gavin Day. If you'd like to email me about the pod, you can do so on sentimentalpod at gmail.com or get in touch with me directly on Twitter or Instagram at Zaraline.